From the Melanina Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona, this is Keeping Up with Public Health Cross-Sector Collaborations. Hi, and welcome to Keeping Up with Public Health from the Western Region Public Health Training Center. I'm your host, Allison Root. This week, we'll discuss collaborations between art and public health. We'll share examples from Skywatchers, a program in San Francisco's Tenderloin District, and Salud Arte in Tucson, Arizona. Welcome, everyone. It's great to be talking with you all today. Thank you so much for having us, Allison. My name is Adrian Ackerman. My pronouns are she, her, Iea. Um, I'm the program director for a few different initiatives at the Pima County Health Department. Um, advancing health literacy and cultural health are the most prominent. And Salud Arte, which we're here to talk to you about today, is the pilot project of the cultural health programming. My background is wildly diverse, um, but includes a lot of community organizing at the grassroots level, and then a lot of convening of partnerships across many different sectors. I'm relatively new to public health, but it feels like the natural nexus of, of all my experiences and passions. And personally, I have a background in performance art. So that's part of the lens that I bring to the arts and health venture. Hi, everyone. Great to be here. Thanks for reaching out, Allison. I'm Sadie Shaw. I'm the Community Design Manager at the Arts Foundation for Tucson and Southern Arizona tasked to manage the Salud Arte program. And my background is also in art. I'm also a performance artist, but my degree is in art and visual culture education. I got that at the University of Arizona, also a community organizer, mainly uh, neighborhood-based in the Sugar Hill neighborhood. And I also serve on the Tucson Unified School Board. I'm Anne Liedenthal. I'm happy to be here. I'm uh, uh, My background is in dance and education and choreography and performing arts in general. And I'm founder and one of the lead artists now of the Skywatchers program based in San Francisco that I'll talk more about in the podcast. And I'm Nancy Epstein. I'm in Philadelphia at Drexel University, where I'm a professor of community health and prevention also a rabbi. I do a lot of work at the intersection of religion, spirituality, and health. And out of that grew my work in arts and public health. I'm also a community organizer. That's the core of everything I do. And we also have a uh, graduate program in arts and public health. And Anne and I have had the pleasure of working together over the last couple of years, introduced by someone who used to work with her, who then several years later, became my student and made that bi-coastal connection. Uh, and then we've written together with others from Skywatchers. The arts have long been used to communicate messages, raise awareness, and bring about change. But it seems more recently that the connection between art and public health was made. Drexel University has a graduate minor in arts and public health. And as it says on their website, focuses on vitality and power of the arts to transform individuals, neighborhoods, communities, and societies. Nancy, why don't you start out with just a little background about arts and public health? Oh, sure. Thanks so much, Allison. So, you know, when we think about arts and public health, and we differentiate that from individually focused creative arts therapy, 
arts and public health is really about social change. And so the values that undergird it are equity, justice, human rights. And our work is really to look at the relationship between arts and public health at those levels of the neighborhood, the community, uh, society at large, policy and advocacy. And so I think of it as really arts for the necessary revolution in our society to keep us fresh and creative and finding new ways of addressing old problems. The Skywatchers program was founded in San Francisco over 10 years ago. Um, tell us more about your work with that program. We're in our 12th year, which means it was founded in 2011. It's a mixed ability, community-based performing arts ensemble, bringing artists into durational collaboration with residents of San Francisco's Tenderloin neighborhood. Our core belief is that relationship is the first site of social change, that large-scale transformation begins with intimate interpersonal interaction, which engenders change for everyone involved, the artists, the participants, the witnesses, the community. Our work emerges from the issues and the urgent concerns that animate ensemble members' lives, most of whom are subject to conditions of housing insecurity and disenfranchisement at large. So our work ranges from formal to site-specific to interventional to ritual to visual art, film, media, multimedia works. It's all part of a long-term community-embedded social practice. So, and in addition to the core ensemble, the programs include um, going workshops in support of housing residencies, a youth program, a health equity collaboration, which we'll talk more about, and uh, over a dozen partnerships in with other community organizations. For example, our first partner was the Tenderloin National Forest, which is an incredible project that turned a, a sort of junk crack alley way in the middle of the Tenderloin in San Francisco into an incredible green an art space over a 20 year period with artists from all over the world actually contributing to it. That was our first partnership to sort of activate and become one of the resident arts organizations in that space. But our partnerships have ranged from that to the housing nonprofit in which I first started doing the work, which is called Community Housing Partnership, is now called HomeRise, and a number of collaborative projects that were based on dialogue emerged from that that partnership. We work with the enormous Glide Foundation of San Francisco that you may or may not be familiar with. They have a Center for Social Justice and we've done a number of projects with them, with the Coalition on Homelessness, with the Faithful Fools organization with whom we are doing the, the health equity work as well as uh, UCSF Medical School and Institution Adrian and Sadie, your project is much more specific to a very limited time period and a specific topic, right? So tell us more about the Salute Art Day program. I would say that it is limited in time, for sure, but not necessarily in project or scope or um, goals. Ours is an effort that the Pima County Health Department was awarded three federal and state 
grant funding opportunities specifically focused on COVID-19 mitigation efforts and promoting recovery and resilience and, and access to healthcare navigation in the summer of 2021. And in the same year, the Board of Supervisors came out with a resolution, a declaration of racism as a public health emergency. And so our director, Dr. Teresa Cullen, saw the opportunity to really focus on innovative models to approach social cohesion and to promote cultural healing and combat racism and decided to write into the final project plans for each of those grants about 1% of funding for building a culture of health. And our first foray into that space was really interacting with public arts specifically. There's a myriad of ways that you can promote cultural health. Public arts is one of them. At the time, the project was really focusing on kind of traditional public arts like uh, murals and whatnot. We did some additional research. We found the we-making model. I'm not sure if y'all are familiar with it, but it was developed by the University of Florida's Center for Arts and Medicine. And it really provides like one of the best theories of change and frameworks um, for developing social cohesion through cultural celebration that we came across. And we were also dabbling in human-centered design, which is a design approach that centers the folks with whom you're trying to solve problems at every phase of the process. So from problem definition to prototyping, piloting, and solutioning. And so we had a lot of really great support um, at the leadership level in our department to try and approach this arts collaboration in some innovative ways. We reached out to the Arts Foundation for Tucson in Southern Arizona to gauge their interest. And fortunately, they were enthusiastically interested. And then we set out on a very long and arduous process to bring these discrete funding opportunities together for this one project. So for anyone who's worked in federal or state level grants funding, you know, there's a lot of requirements to ensure that um, project activities funding are all separated, um, that you're not like braiding funding or activities. But we wanted to use these three funding opportunities to achieve a collective mission. We started with conversations uh, at the very high level with our funders and, and then continued along a route of difficult, complicated conversations internally with our procurement and finance departments and really trying to socialize this idea of something that neither the county or the Arts Foundation had ever really done before. And it's approaching this collaboration in a, in a very different way that's absolutely community-led and community-informed. I think without those conversations and without the business models that we developed, we wouldn't be at the place that we're at. But I, I think also what's been critical is the partnerships we've developed, which we can talk about a little bit more later, but they include willing and wonderful partners like the Arts Foundation, identifying really strong and trusted community leaders to head the project, which is where Sadie comes in, and you know a myriad of other partnerships to grow and develop this kind of new foray at the county and governmental level. My two cents will likely be more on the bureaucratic and administrative side, with the caveat that we are really trying to do something different and new in public health. But I'll defer to Sadie for more context on the Arts Foundation side. Thanks, Adrian. As far as the Arts Foundation goes, um, I think Adrian mentioned that, yeah, it's, it's a program that we haven't done before. 
Um, we've never, as far as from my knowledge, had a program where interdisciplinary artists were open to really participate in this sort of grant-funded project where really the community would be at the forefront of the design process. And so I just feel so grateful to be included in this pilot program. And as an interdisciplinary artist myself, I think it's critical that we have more opportunities for us types of artists, because not everything can be said in a mural or a sculpture. And so to really leave it open, not only for the community to have a say in what the art they want to see is going to look like, but to really be all inclusive with our arts community here and nationally and globally, because um, we didn't have applicants just from our local Pima County community. We had applicants from all over the world who wanted to be a part of this program. Yeah. Say a little bit more about the program and some of the things you're hoping to accomplish through this specific Salute Art Day program. I think mainly what we're trying to accomplish is to amplify the community's resilience uh, throughout the pandemic. And so that's why we made it very community-centered, where in each Pima County district, there are five of them. I'm going and looking for people who are within the zip code that has experienced some of the biggest factors that would make them, I guess, sensitive to public health emergencies. Um, Some of those factors include obesity, no insurance, being smokers, even something like not getting enough help. Those were all indicators that we hoped to identify those zip codes. And then to have those community members, you know, not only be a part of the panelist process, but also to be the voices that will inform the artist in the creation of that artwork. Later down the line, once the artist has a design, those community members will be the ones who will either tell the artist, like, I like this design, or no, let's add a little bit more of this or that. And so really, it's just all around community-informed art program. We really share, all of us, the deep commitment to relationship building. That's really where the sustainability is. And that's really where the change is over the long haul. There are so many challenges in public health and so many challenges in communities that as we build, as you're talking about building the culture of health, that's really about what community self-determines for itself through its members and, you know, how do we collectively as health departments and universities and foundations and community-based organizations and neighborhood associations and residents work together to build civic pride and create a community good. And then as we build those relationships, we can turn our attention to any number of problems so that the process is vital. And at least from an evaluation standpoint, I think more important than the outcome alone. The process is where the generativity is and the continuity and the sustainability. Yeah, I absolutely agree, Nancy. And I think that that's part of what we're so excited about. Sadie has been in like intensive recruitment mode for the last month or so, and we are seeking participation from 
15 community members in each of our identified geographic areas. So they include both zip codes, like Sadie mentioned, but also kind of like census tract areas. We're honing in on specific neighborhoods that experience social vulnerabilities on the social vulnerability index, but also who have been historically and contemporarily excluded and thereby were the most affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. It's hard to parse out because there's so many different experiences included in there. But it's also why we're really leaning heavily on this human-centered design process, because we may enter into this partnership with certain assumptions about what would be valuable to a particular community, and we may emerge with a complete 180 on checking our assumptions. And I think that is that process that you're talking about, kind of next generation thinking when it comes from governmental or institutional entities. So we're really excited because we're going to be engaging our community members in a conversation, not just about how did the COVID-19 pandemic affect you personally, your family system, your community, but also what are your hopes and dreams for resilient recovery and what do you want to see? And that's why we're trying to focus, like Sadie said, on the interdisciplinary approach where art pieces can be created that serve a function for that community. And also this kind of like, ambiguous, we'll figure it out as soon as we get the inputs has made it very difficult from like a administrative and contractual standpoint. And that relationship building between and within our departments and external funders has been key in in cultivating the trust, not only for them to trust us in executing the process, but then in cultivating the parameters for the community to trust us. And so one of the things that we are really proud of that we've developed is a much more equitable payment model for participation. So community members are invited to four or five community meetings over the next several months, and they're being paid not only $100 per engagement, but also being provided the option of a child care in order to be able to attend the meetings. So we're really excited about that relational aspect with our community. It's, it's different than how we've done things before. That's so excellent, Adrian and, and Sadie. And I think really important model. Nancy and I talk a lot about relationship in terms of community, um, but I also feel like you're talking about, Adrian, about relationship with funder and agency. And so important that you're bringing that at the same time, that they're equally important if the object is to create structural change. What I've felt sort of throughout my career is this overall sort of fear of the funder and fear of government agency and, and uh, a sort of inherent inferiority complex. We must bend ourselves to the will, which means that the funder and the agency shape the field. And we contort ourselves to meet that because we need them financially. But I feel like one of my missions in life has been to say, nah, -uh, let's turn the table. We know what's needed and we know the kind of process that is necessary and right and just. It's up to us to set those terms and to keep a cordial but insistent relationship where we keep refining those terms. Yes, we're going to do this project, but no, you can't expect social impact in six months. In two years, you can expect a real relationship with an organization or an agency or um, a community, a neighborhood, but you don't start talking about impact. You're coming from a sort of colonial framework 
or at the very least a paternalistic framework where some outsider is going to come and create social change. That's just not the way it works. It's not right. It's a wrong attitude. In these collaborations, it's almost always the small arts organization that takes on most of the financial burden, the labor burden, the administrative burden. And to start being a model, like you're saying, of honoring people's time and commitment and insisting that those more resourced are supporting, like they're being paid to come to the table Everyone needs to be paid to come to the table and everyone's time needs to be honored. And um, yeah, slow art, equitable compensation for labor. Thank you for for being a good model for that. Sometimes people talk about the need to find the right person within an organization to work with or identifying a champion within an organization. What are your thoughts about finding a champion or coming to a shared vision? I don't know what anybody else's secret ingredient is there, but mine has just been hang out long enough, like keep showing up. And I've gone through many, many more partnerships that really weren't on the same page before finding those that really are. And it's given me so much faith when I finally discover, oh, there are people that see the inherent necessity of arts collaboration in a process that understand that this sort of dismantling takes time. If you are doing anything truly community-centered, then you can't impose an end product on it or content or subject parameters. It has to emerge. It has to be an emergent process. I keep going back to a phrase that Sadie used earlier about amplifying community resilience. And I don't often hear people using the word, at least in public health, about amplifying We tend to be so focused on talking about solving things, which we actually rarely do. The most compelling public health problems have been with us for probably all of humanity. And so on the one hand, I think, you know, Allison, you asked, how do we engage health departments? And I think one way is that perhaps people don't right away see the connection between arts and community health. And so I think we have an opportunity to educate, but to go more than educate, because education by itself isn't the great motivator, but really where's the self-interest of the health department itself to find new, creative ways of addressing old problems? How do we bring human creativity of all voices, amplifying those voices, amplifying resilience in ways that are new because we know that a lot of the old ways don't work the way we would have hoped they do. So arts, culture, creativity, I think it's part of our job to help educate the public health workforce to understand the vitality of engaging people around what they care about, which is often the well-being of themselves, their families, their neighbors, their communities. And how do we do this together? And so Sadie, my question to you is, I'd love to hear you talk more about Amplify Community Resilience. What does that mean to you? And I think that's the kind of question we could be asking lots of people in the communities with which we work. Thank you for the question. So, you know, as I was out in the communities doing outreach, a lot of the people who I would approach and who would approach me, they would say, I I don't think that this is right for me, or I did not lose anyone during the pandemic. So I, 
not a good voice for your program or all kinds of things. But then when I kind of went into why their voice was important, why even though they didn't lose someone, they may have had something happen to them that they don't even realize. And so it kind of shifted the community's thoughts about how were they impacted. And so really, I cautioned everyone and told them I will be facilitating the meetings. And everyone's voice is welcome. Everyone's opinion and perspective is welcome, whether you agree with us or you don't. We're here to hear from you, basically. And the artist is here to create from what you experience. We're not trying to construct a narrative. We're simply here to find a way to unload that trauma, to find outlets of healing, pathways of healing through the arts. People are learning so much and they're walking away happy. And they're excited to come back to the next meeting. When they first sit down, they're all wondering, like, why did I sign up for this? Like, I'm just here for the $100. But they're walking away feeling like they're a part of an art project. They understand things that are happening in their city more and that they're connected more. So, yeah, we got to amplify the voices. We got to come in to a community without any preconceived notions. You know, we could have a goal. We should be flexible in getting to the end. I think we couldn't have greater success than that. That's like the pinnacle of success. I so relate to what you're saying, Sadie. And people often ask me, like, how how are you engendering trust in community? People aren't asked. People simply are not invited to the table. And um, part of that trust is really that part of what you're gaining trust in is that you're interested. I'm really, really interested in what people have to say. And I'm really, really passionate about, and that's where, yeah, amplifying, I feel like is essential to all the work that artists do in community. You know, in my experience with people being invited into civic discourse, it's a popular right now, a community listening session, but you're invited to be part of a neighborhood plan and you come and you, if you can make it to city hall, which is very intimidating to begin with, if you can get there, there's already a PowerPoint being delivered. The, it's a fait accompli and you're invited into it only insofar as you're supposed to buy into, you know, the million dollar consultants and what they've already decided is going to happen in your neighborhood. I mean, we're talking about actually inviting people to design the project, <laughs> to decide what they want to say and how they want to say it and under what context and in what venue and all of that. That is um, not to be underestimated in terms of the power of that invitation. Uh, and the responsibility to honor that invitation that we have. And um, it's really, you know, that amplification, as you said, Nancy and Sadie, is central. We aren't just ticking a box of like, I had 25 community members come to my meeting, but actually, yeah, they were intrinsic to a process. And I think that's such an important point because that's long been my beef, I guess, with community listening sessions. It's like, okay, great. You listened. Where's the action, right? Like I want a community action session. And it sounds like y'all have through Skywatchers been able to, I'm sure not without its challenges, but at least in the way that we were hearing about it today, seamlessly weave this kind of progression through that commitment to duration engagement from uh, arts-based programming to really like a community effort to improve 
the experience of residents that that live in the area that's been so chronically underserved. Every health department, every at least governmental organization or large institutional organization is going to be different. And a lot of um, the responsibility on this end comes down to leadership and political factors that you need to navigate. And I think really at least on our end, sometimes we really had to make the business case for something that we understand to be so fundamentally values-based. But with so much emerging economic understanding about like the long-term benefits of providing that voice and that space for democratizing decisions and social interaction and cohesion, especially on the tail end of the pandemic, it's has really been beneficial for us. And one of the things you have been involved with through Skywatchers is something called Community Grand Rounds. Tell us, what is Community Grand Rounds? Before the pandemic, I was already in a kind of low-key, constant level of outrage and heart wrench around losing people I loved, who were my age, who were dying or sick or suffering because of lack of access to medical care, because of medical racism, medical trauma, medical neglect, stigma, unable to get care or trying very hard to get care and getting poor care. You're familiar with medical grand rounds, which usually positions the physician to present to medical students and other doctors some great technology or some amazing case they did. This would sort of flip the table and bring in community members as experts in all the isms that I just listed. Where the arts come in is that we, the arts build relationship. We had at that point a 10, 11 year history of relationships of trust we're able to immediately say, does anyone want to tell their stories of interface with the medical system? And we have, we created a bank of stories, firsthand stories of intersection with medicine and personal experiences. And then we collected a bank, an archive also of folks working inside of the medical establishment, the UCSF system in particular. We're able to provide a context for the kind of experiences that individuals were having and we've crafted those into modules that would be a community grand round. So the community members would be the experts. And these modules are presented to medical students or physicians in different departments throughout the system to teach service providers uh, or clinicians about the issues facing poor folks and folks of color. All of our work and all of the partnerships that we create um, and relates also to what Adrian you were saying about get, getting up front about our values to begin with. We are not just creating the individual relationship. We're creating that individual relationship in in a larger frame to dismantle an an oppressive system, to dismantle structural systemic oppressions. And that's what we're doing inside of this health equity work inside of the medical institutions to really get to the ground in which they were built and take that apart. Nancy, you and Anne wrote and published an article titled Leveraging Arts for Justice, Equity, and Public Health, the Skywatchers Program and its Implications for Community-Based Health Promotion Practice and Research. In the article, you say that the two fields, arts and public health, share commitments to justice, equity, and well-being 
but they employ different complementary sets of tools and often assume different roles and goals in communities. So what do you think about the potential for collaboration and how people can really bring their complementary skills together? As we were beginning to talk, and that led to the collaborative article that Anne and Deidre and Clara and Meredith Minkler and I wrote. So half of this group is working in Skywatchers on the ground in community-based work, and the other half of us is working in public health. And as we're talking, we're exploring and finding that we're talking about pretty much the same things. So for instance, I teach in a school of public health, and bring skills like evaluation and community-based program planning, as well as community organizing to a joint collaborative endeavor. Our Skywatchers colleagues are the artists on the ground. So as we share similar kinds of processes, we discovered that you know our commitments to relationship building and this relational, durational, slow art and we know that community change is often a slow process. We said, how can we bring these together, the different tools, the different ways that we work, and we just kept finding so many similarities. Often we called things different by different terms, but we discovered even as we we're talking about community-based participatory research as a natural fit to try and evaluate qualitatively the impact of community-based arts programs within communities themselves. So a very natural fit from the quote-unquote skill set in public health that could really be a contributor to the work of community-based arts. And artists themselves, as creatives and creators, have so much to bring to the public health world in terms of engagement and new ways and Something we haven't talked about today is really meaning-making. How do we create and develop programs and create strategies and programs that mean something to people? And just like Sadie was talking about earlier, that means that people want to come back. That people walk out of a meeting thinking something important happened here. Something happened here that has meaning. I want to be a part of this. So we have different ways of looking at this same goal of how to create environments where people want to participate. They show up and they keep showing up to be part of the process. And that's where community-based problem solving, whether you call it public health or you call it community-based arts, it's still about addressing issues in the lived experience of people living in communities. And we can do that from a myriad of avenues. And that's why cross-sector collaboration is so key. Nancy, I love everything that you just said. It's so amazing. And I want to tie it to, to one other thought, which is that I think what feels very different on our end and the way that the Pima County Health Department is approaching this new collaboration is that so often, especially in our social models, we're approaching problem solving from a scarcity-based model. And what you're describing is really like an abundance-based model. The resources that are already inherent within the communities that we're seeking to serve. And being able to recognize and approach that takes a level of vulnerability and humility that isn't 
usually associated with governmental structures because there's a necessity for kind of like, um, I'll say quote unquote order keeping or like kind of a hierarchical approach to problem solving. And so I was just struck when you said community change like takes a long time. And I'm like, I yes, absolutely, especially in the structures within which we operate. But I've seen community change accelerated when the barriers to that change are replaced by facilitators. And I think that's what we're really trying to do as a health department right now is to become more of a facilitator for that community-led change. And so again, finding the the camaraderie and the partnership with the Arts Foundation to lead that and to really be the faces of like building that trust with the community has been an accelerator so far. And we're just getting started. Sadie and Adriana Gallego, who's the executive director of the Arts Foundation, as well as our human-centered design partner, Priyanka Pathak, they have all been really trying to consider what are the ways that we can ensure community members walk away from these meetings with that feeling that you just described, including if we're inviting folks to talk about their trauma, what kind of resources do we have on hand if they need help? And how can we like include health in action in the setting of these meetings? And so not only are they devising really meaningful activities where community members get to make art themselves as a process for exploration of what they would like their community represented art to look like, but also like how can we safeguard and make sure that trust is there and have community norms in these meetings that mirror the types of community norms we should be establishing culturally in order to ensure resilience. I feel like removing barriers to community-led change is really important and a nice takeaway for me because it settles me back into process that I believe in, which is not about um, forcing new structures, but removing. It's sort of like one of my mottos in life is don't push the river. You can't push the river, but you can sort of like dig away some earth so that the river flows. And I feel like that's a nice image for me to take away here. You know, as we're concluding, I'm thinking in terms of what Adrian just said, it's a a moral and ethical responsibility of those of us in public health to focus on strengths and assets and not focus, especially over-focus, on needs and problems. That's the deficit model. We work from a budget deficit model often and a human capacities deficit model, and everyone has something to contribute. Each of us is a combination of challenges and needs and problems and strengths, each of us individually, and same in our communities. So for those of us in public health, it is incumbent on us to create the pathways of change that are inviting, that are equitable, that are welcoming, that are genuine, and to engage in a way that everybody's contributions can make a difference. That's what will change our society. That's what will improve our lives. And if we're not committed to that kind of welcoming inclusivity, then what are we here for? That was super powerful, Nancy. And I was just going to add, if any listeners 
are interested in how to make the financial argument for that incentive payment model. We did a lot of market research and presented a good case to our funders and so happy to help with that kind of like bureaucratic edge. I'm really excited about your work, Sadie and Adrian, and wonderful to be in community with you, Nancy and Allison. Yeah, I just really thank you all for being here and sharing your work. This podcast is supported by the Western Region Public Health Training Center. The WRPHTC offers continuing education credit hours for certified health education specialists. If you are looking to obtain credits, please visit our learning portal at learn.wrphtc.arizona.edu and select the Keeping Up with Public Health podcast to take the post-evaluation survey for this episode. A transcript of this episode is also available on our learning portal. You can find more of our work at wrphtc.arizona.edu. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter at wrphtc. A special thank you to Eric Healy for his help in publishing the show and creating the music for each episode.